Well, I'll say this morning what I would normally say on Sunday morning. Good morning, church. It's good to see each of you and uh, to see those of you who have been here the entire time and then those of you who may be here for the first time this morning, uh, I say welcome. And, of course, our, our primary concern is that we welcome the Lord in our hearts as we once again take a moment to say, Lord, we want to hear you. We want to hear what you're saying to us. We want to know your heart. And so we have worshipped and we have prayed and and we are waiting on him now to do that. I want to say thank you before I get too far into this and I want to say thank you to Colin and Art and Michael and all the faculty and staff here, um, Warren who prayed and just, just all the men and women who who have been used by God to help set a foundation in the lives of men and women for decades now in this place. And we praise the Lord. I praise the Lord for this ministry. We saw the videos earlier of Jerry sharing from his his apartment in Denham Springs, Louisiana. And uh, he has been such a blessing to this institution, this school, and to my life and to countless other men and women over the years. He and Miss Jerry together, and they are a pair. And, um, and so we're just so thankful for them. Uh, we mentioned the book Fellowship with God. There's a book that's back there. I think it's called Drawing Near. Uh, or when God drew near, or something like that. I can't remember the title. Um, when uh, I think the last time Jerry was in a church where I was pastoring, um, I don't know, six, seven years ago, perhaps, we were sitting in my study at my home, and we were talking, and we were kind of doing this every chance we could. We were just enjoying these times where we could talk. and And Jerry had sort of come into... Um, God using him in some very significant ways and powerful ways during what we scholars now call the Jesus People Movement. And so I was asking Jerry questions about ministry, and not just then, but at other times in his life. And as he's sharing these stories, I, I just, I just said, I, I'm just listening, and I'm, I'm hearing how God used someone who was surrendered fully to Him. And and how God made Himself known in and through Jerry, and through his life, and and Jerry all the time thinking, you know, I don't understand, and why me, and and I'm hearing these stories. And I said, Jerry, there's a whole generation of people in ministry who have no idea that God is ready to to do through us what you're sharing with me. They've, they've not seen the things that you're describing. I said, you have got to write these stories down. And he just sort of laughed. But I was serious. And, and I mentioned that to him several times. We'd be talking. He'd, he'd start telling these stories. And I'd say, Jerry, you got to write these down. Uh, some months later, we were on the phone, and he had talked, and he'd shared a story. I said, Jerry, 
You've got to write that one down. I was writing them down. I was writing them in my journal. I said, Jerry told me this story, you know, and would write it down. And then uh, one morning I was praying and I was praying for Jerry and and this came to mind, just help him. And so I called him. I said, Jerry, Jerry, I used to be an editor. You know that, you know, at a publishing house. Why don't you dictate? His eyes at that point were just so not doing well. And um, he was losing his sight. I said, Jerry, you could just dictate these stories and and we'll get them written. I'll write them down. We'll we'll edit them. And and he finally had a sense from the Lord that he needed to write some things down. Now, he didn't do an autobiography. This is not an autobiography, this book. But it is a series of significant moments in, in Jerry's life where God taught him something and showed him something about himself. And so if you saw those videos or didn't, it doesn't matter. I would encourage you to to pick that up and 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 just read something of his journey because I it will bless you, it will encourage you, and perhaps just open up uh, a wider uh, expectation in your heart for what God might do in your life when you're fully surrendered to him. I thought about where to kind of start what I wanted to say this morning. We've been talking about Luke chapter 18, and... And in the first night, we took a phrase. And for those of you who haven't looked at that passage, you may you may want to open it up and, and look there. Luke 18, when Jesus begins that chapter, it is in the, in the middle of a larger conversation that's taking place with his disciples. He's telling them about his coming again. And I don't know how familiar you are with, with the concept of the kingdom of God in the scripture, but... but the kingdom of God is so important throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. When Jesus came preaching, he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And when I was younger and I would read that, it was like gospel of the kingdom. I, I've never heard Billy Graham talk about the gospel of the kingdom. You know, I, when I think gospel, I was thinking of Billy Graham type presentation and an invitation and people coming forward. So what is this gospel of the kingdom? The very first reference to the, the kingdom of God or the sense of God as a king occurs after the Israelites have been delivered when they were crossing the Red Sea. And, and they are exploding with joy because you know what happened. The, the Pharaoh and, the, well, not Pharaoh, but the chariots and the Egyptian army, Pharaoh's armies follow them into the Red Sea and God lets the waters that have been divided come back and cover up Pharaoh's armies, and they have defeated the mightiest nation on the planet, and they didn't raise a finger. God fought for them. Exodus 14, 14, uh, Moses told them, God will fight for you. And so they're dancing, and they're singing, and there's this song of Moses in Exodus 15. At the very end of the song of Moses, before his sister starts another song, um, just at the end of the song of Moses, it says something to the effect of our God will reign forever. And the, the word reign is used. And it's the first reference to the kingly rule of God. And when the, the tabernacle is established, it's obvious the original intent is that God would lead and rule and direct his people himself with no mediation. And, and, and yet there's this transition that takes place. The people want a king and, 
and God permits them to have a king. And, and there you see this transition from God directly ruling his people to now he's going to rule through an anointed adopted king. And you can, and, and David represents this ultimately. And Solomon expresses this as well. In Psalm 2, you can read about it, how, how, you know, the Lord speaks to his son that he's begotten, but there's, there's this dual application where David's involved, but clearly it's a reference to the Lord Jesus. And so God intends to rule through an anointed adopted king and and we see the highest expression of this on the human side through the kingdom of, of Solomon. And when he is at his maximum authority and rule, the extent of the territory of Israel, you can read about it in First Kings 4, it just describes how there's this shalom that's all over the land as God is ruling and expressing his rule through Solomon, wisdom, and, and everybody's benefiting from that all the enemies are subdued there's peace in the land every person is prosperous every man's under his fig tree Uh, their wives are having hundreds of babies and it's just this picture of of shalom and God expressing his rule and what it looks like when God puts things back the way he intended it to be The prophets, when the kings fail and the kingdoms divided, the prophets begin to speak of the coming kingdom of God. And you see this described over and over again. They talk about the judgment that's coming and the terrible things that are coming, and yet God's going to rescue His people and restore His people. And then there's, and when this king comes, and He comes and expresses His, His authority and His rule, and He he whoops up on all the enemies and he, and, and we see something of what happened with Solomon is restored again to the people of God. Perhaps in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65, you see this description of what it looks like when God is on his throne and that is manifested on the earth. The things that go on now don't happen. There's, there's peace. Um, the wolf doesn't Eat the lamb. The lion and the lamb eat together. They lie down together. Children can play by an adder's hole, a snake hole, and he can put his hand in there. He's not bitten. And it says, the phrase there is, there'll be no harm on my holy mountain. No harm. And so when Jesus comes into an environment of expectation, people who have grown up with the prophets and they have they knew about the height of the kingdom rule under David and Solomon, and then it degenerated from there. People have this expectation there's a Messiah coming, another anointed one. That's what Messiah means, anointed one who is coming. And when he comes, he's going to whoop up on all the enemies, and this amazing era of shalom is going to be ushered in. And so Jesus comes, and right after... Um, baptism temptation he begins to preach and what is he preaching he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of god and he had their attention i mean this is the guy this is the one who's going to do this and of course uh, many are disappointed because 
he doesn't seem to be doing it the way they expected him to do it. And there's some some confusion. They're asking him questions about this. You see this especially in Matthew 13 the, where Jesus talks about the mysteries of the kingdom. You know, where he describes this uh, wheat and tares, for example, parable. And, um, you know, and he says the kingdom of God is like, you know, this landowner who sows wheat and the enemy comes and he sows tares and they grow up together for a season until the end. And then, and then the, the, the when he tr- explains the parable, God comes and he takes out everything that offends from his kingdom and the wheat are left. Well, that wasn't supposed to happen with the coming of the kingdom. When God came, everything was supposed to stop right then. All evil was to be stopped right then. Everything was to be corrected right then. Enemies defeated. And so there was this unexpected aspect of the kingdom of God where it was now being represented, not only preached, but demonstrated in the ministry of Jesus. And yet there's a more full expression of the kingdom of God yet to come. When Jesus did miracles like casting out demons, he was demonstrating his message. That when the world, when man sinned and when the world was made plunged into corruption and all the universe was plunged in corruption. That when God comes into our time and space, he is coming to put it right. The essence of. Shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out to him day and night? The idea is exacting justice, but the core concept there is putting it right. It's wrong. It needs to be put right. And so in the ministry of Jesus, we see that. Sin is forgiven. Sickness was not part of the original plan. And so he heals people. Demonized people, that wasn't part of the plan. And so he expels demons. And, and, and uses that when he's criticized for that as an opportunity to explain what he's doing. He said, they, they, they accuse him. They accuse him in Matthew 12 and, and towards the end of Luke 11. They say the same thing. Pharisees come and say, well, he just casts out demons. Because he somehow engaged with Satan and he uses the power of Satan to cast out demons. Beelzebub. And Jesus says, well, that's, that's dumb. <laughs> you know, a house divided against itself can't stand. You know? Uh, Satan casts out Satan. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And, and, uh, and if that's true, well, you know, you've got rabbis that go around and cast out demons. Where do they get their authority and power? You know? He says, but. It's in the text. He says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so he wasn't just preaching the good news of the rule of God pressing into our history and our time and space. He was demonstrating it by the things that he was doing. And we are taught to pray in with the kingdom in mind. When you go to the Lord's Prayer. Say, our Father who is in the heavens, the world I cannot see. Your name, let it be made holy. Your will, let it be done. Your kingdom come, let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in heaven, how does he express his rule? Perfectly. 
All the things that are wrong in creation, all the things that are broken in the realm that I cannot see where God rules and he expresses his rule fully. There is no sin or sickness or Satan and everything is put right. And Jesus says, when you pray every day, and he intends that we pray every day about these things. You can't ask for daily bread every other day, you know, so so you have to pray about these things daily. And he's saying, in a sense, he's saying, Father, the way that you rule in heaven. Lord, here's my world. Here's where I live. Here are the things that I'm seeing. And and as you point them out to me, as you show me, these are things that are not right. And Lord, the way that you rule in heaven, would you come and rule in my circumstances in the same way? Crying out day and night. Oh, God, would you put it right? And Jesus says, when you and I live in a world where it's very, very hard to be a Christian. And we begin to cry out to him day and night, oh God, oh God, deliver us, put it right. Bring, bring to fruition all that you have in mind when you come as king. And you put it all back the way you intended and make everything new. And so this is the way we're called to pray. And this is the way the church is intended to do church. Not in our strength. Not relying on ourself and our ingenuity. But depending on the king. And looking to the king. To bring the walls down. The gates of hell. As he builds his church. In the middle of the 19th century there was a revival that began actually in the U.S. And then spread across the pond to uh, England and Ireland and Scotland and Wales. When that was happening, there was a, a boy that was born. His name was Seth Joshua. He was grew up to be an evangelist in Wales. And he grew up hearing the stories of the revival during that period of time, the late 1850s, early 1860s. He, and he wanted to see that happen again in Wales. And he knew their history. Welsh, Welsh revivalism was, was very powerful. And there had been like 16 major revivals in Wales in the history. And just a remarkable place where God just seemed to come again and again and again and make his presence real and lives were changed. And so as he was an evangelist, he and his brother were starting a a church. He began to pray. He felt led to pray. Oh, God, would you one day, one day, would you raise up a young man, not someone classically trained for ministry and in seminaries or in higher education, but someone from the coal mines, from the collieries, someone from the coal mines who would who would be your instrument of revival in Wales. And I can't prove this because I don't have Seth Joshua's journals, um, but I have read a good bit about what he said. And before, before things changed in Wales, he was praying. And about the time he was praying, and as best as I can figure it out, don't hold me to this, you know, don't make me prove this. But about that time, there was a 14-year-old boy Named Evan Roberts. And Evan 
had a sense, a burden that he was to pray for revival in Wales. And this just stayed on this young man's heart year after year after year after year. He did work in the coal mines. And, and, and he went to a Bible school eventually. He, he, he just felt that he needed to go, but he was a terrible student. I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying he wasn't a great student. And while he was at school, he began waking up in the middle of the night to pray. He just couldn't sleep. And, and this sense of heaviness for his country would just, was growing and growing and growing. And one night, he had this, this dream or vision or whatever you want to call it. And uh, very, very simply, it was graphic, uh, of, of the hand of Father God handing a blank check or a check to the son and the number 100,000 was written on it. He got up the next morning and told his friend, Sidney Evans, and he told him about it. And um, Sidney would later be a missionary in India um, and married, I think, Evans' sister. I can't remember exactly. but And they, they both talked about this, wrote it down in their journals. And, and Seth Joshua was preaching... Um, a meeting at a place called Blenenerk. Blenenerk. I can't say it. Welsh words. Mm. And while he was preaching there, in the course of his preaching, he said, Lord, bend me. And what he was saying was, Lord, conform me to your heart. Conform me to the things that matter to you. Bend me. Nevin was there in that meeting and he he heard such Joshua pray that. And he began to make that his prayer. Oh God, would you bend me? Would you so direct my life that I would only be about you all the time, every minute of every day? And he asked for an opportunity to speak. And the pastor of the church, uh, hesitantly maybe, let him speak in the evening and and as he spoke and he spoke on other nights more people came and there was this increasing awareness that this was something out of the ordinary and they sensed the presence of God now those of you who are who are students of theology um can wrestle with some of the terminology that people use when they talk about revival and spiritual awakening because we know that God is omnipresent, right? Omnipresent. He is in all places at the same time. And to put it in, the, in my terms, <laughs> we say He's omnipresent because He's really big. Really big. He's so big that there's no place in the universe I can go where God is not. He fills every, every place in creation. But there's a difference between knowing that with my head and knowing that with my heart. But dear one, you need to know that it is your birthright to experience the presence of God. Whether it's alone or in a group, but it is your birthright. In Acts chapter 3 verse 19 on the steps of the temple in Jerusalem, just after they healed a lame man, Peter's preaching, and he says, Repent and be converted. 
so that your sins may be blotted out. So that, this is the purpose. Repent, get saved. Have your sins washed, blotted out. Why? So you can go to heaven? He says, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And not one time, it's plural, times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. And so there are these times in history that are recorded in the church. So many others that aren't recorded were individuals sitting with the Lord on their face before the Lord, waiting on God, enjoying him, loving him. As Jerry was talking about this morning in the video, these, these dear ones that the Lord has chosen to manifest his presence. And in his presence, there are all these markers we read in scripture, hints or indicators that someone has experienced the presence of God. It can even be a radiance to their countenance. It, it's, it can be a, a extra sensitivity to sin. When John the Baptist was preaching, the people would say, you know, that we repent. We repent. But their first reaction, every group of people that was responding to John the Baptist was this. What shall we do? He was preaching repentance and their first reaction was, what shall we do? What shall we do? There was a sense that I need to put things right. I need to change. There's a sense of awe, a sense of reverence. Typically when the Lord manifests himself in scripture and in history, people can't stay on their feet. John said, I saw him, I fell down on my face like a dead man. And so there, there are effects that his presence has on us. We, we gaze on him in his word. And then there are these times when he makes himself known to us in a way that's palpable, that's real, that's immediate to our heart. And it's, it's life defining and it changes us. And we see the world in an entirely new way. We see ourselves as he sees us and we can never see it the same way again. We become broken people in a, in a good way. This happened to Nehemiah. Nehemiah 1. When the news was brought to him of the condition of the walls and the condition of the people in Jerusalem and, and they, they tell him, and these brothers come from Jerusalem and they're reporting to Nehemiah. He's, he's a cupbearer to the king. And, and they're carrying this news. You know, baptisms are down. Uh, we have pastors falling into immorality. Uh, the walls are down. We're like a church without walls. And the enemy can come and go as he pleases and do whatever he wants. And, and they're just carrying this news, just like, you know, Fox News or CNN. Here's what's happened today in Jerusalem. It's not bothering them. But when Nehemiah hears it, when Nehemiah hears it, everything stops. He says, I sat down and I wept. And I prayed. And if you watch the timeline, he prayed for about four months. Just grieving. What had happened? God enabled him to see his world the way God was seeing it. And he could never see it the same way again. And so in the presence of God, there are all of these things that take place. And, and, um, and it changes us. Changes us. Our perspective changes our 
Our attention becomes more focused on Him. Fear does that. God doesn't want us to fear anything except Him. Because when you're afraid of something, you focus all of your attention on that thing. And um, I use the illustration a lot of times if, if Monty and I decided, where's the nearest zoo? Greenville has a zoo. Okay, great. Monty, this afternoon, you and I are going to the zoo. And we go to the zoo, and uh, Monty and I are enjoying it. But he seems to have a bad attitude. And uh, I say, Monty, we go by where the giraffes are. Look at those creatures. Their necks are so long. Those are amazing creatures. And Monty says, eh, you've seen one giraffe. You've seen them all. <laughs> we go by where they keep the monkeys and the great apes and I said, look at these creatures that God has made. Those are amazing. Look at those gorillas. They're just watching you as you walk by. They're kind of scary, intimidating. I said, Monty, isn't that amazing? And Monty's just kind of bored and, eh, you know, you've seen one monkey. You've seen them all. And then we go by where the, where the lions are, cougars and these huge animals, fangs. And come here, Monty. Come up here a second. <laughs> I, I've had it with Monty. Okay? So, so we go by where they keep the lions. I said, Monty, my friend, look at that amazing beast. And Monty goes, eh, I've seen lions. And at that point, I've had it up to here. And so before he knows what I'm doing, I reach over and I open up the cage and I push Monty into it. And I close the cage. And suddenly, what does Monty think about the lion? His whole perspective has changed. He can't think of anything but that lion. He's watching that lion, and the lion's watching him. And and he, he licks his lips, and he's looking at, at Monty, and he's thinking, this is going to be a nice snack, you know? And And he's watching the respiration rate of the lion, Every movement of that lion and his entire attention is focused on the thing that he fears. And when you and I begin to see God as he is, all of our attention is focused on God. Thank you, Monty. Thank you so much. Y'all give Monty a hand. That's the easiest applause you'll ever get. Um, and so... And so this was happening during the revival in Wales from about 1904 to 1906. And, um, and so this revival was taking place and people were coming to Christ. And it wasn't just happening where Evan Roberts was preaching, but it was happening all over Wales, North Wales, everywhere. And, and so there were many evangelists, many preaching. And people from all over the world, all over the world, were coming to see what was happening. Uh, there was a, I found this article some years ago in the London Times. And the secular reporter went to watch one of the Evan Roberts meetings and he he describes it in great detail. I've got the article if you ever want to see it. He describes it in great detail. He describes it how the whistles blew in the mines and these men are trudging to the chapel. And they've been working all day and they come to the chapel and the chapel fills up and then it's full and people are outside and they've got the windows open and people are standing outside. Over the over time these little chapels would build larger meeting halls to accommodate all these people. And, uh, and, and they would come and they would gather and Evan would, would be there and he would preach a while and people would sing 
And others would stand up and testify and confess sin. And then they would sing and then he would preach. And sometimes he wouldn't preach and they would wait for him to say something. And meanwhile, they would just start singing spontaneously. And this went on all night long. And then the whistles would blow at the mines. And those men will go back to the mines singing hymns. And the reporter wrote this. He said they go back not having eaten or drunk anything. Not having slept. And, and he said, oh, this is his words, oh, the timelessness of it all. This is a man that doesn't know God. But he's describing something that happens in the presence of God. We lose all track of time. Why? Because he's eternal. Time means nothing to an eternal God. And so these people were experiencing something of the presence of God. And I, we could talk about that a long time. But people were coming all over the world to come and hear this. And people from California and Chicago, Moody Bible Institute and Korea and you know, just everywhere there were evangelical churches, they came, they wanted to participate, they wanted to experience this. R.A. Torrey and um, G. Campbell Morgan, just all kinds of folks. Um, and, and I could talk about that way too long. That's not why I'm here. About that time, there were some Welsh missionaries in Korea. Uh, after the Welsh revival, a lot of these people went out to spread the gospel, and so they were there, and it's a, it's a great story, but in 1907, there was this revival um, that broke out in Korea. And it defined Korea to where it's the most Christianized nation today in the Asian world. The largest churches in the world are in Seoul, Korea. 35% of the nation are believers. And they are a praying lot. They they do pray. We used to start churches in California. And if we were, we were helping to start a church for a Korean group, we just got out of the way. We let them use our building until they outgrew it, and then they'd go down somewhere else. They'd come in on Friday night, though, and they'd pray all night. And then they would meet on Sunday. In China... 1907, there was a missionary Lutheran nurse. Her name was Marie Monson. And she heard about this revival taking place in Korea. And she said, Lord, I want to go. I heard about the revival in Wales, and now I'm hearing about this revival in Korea. Lord, I want to go. Would you provide the money so that I can go? I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of where you are at work in this mighty way. And the Lord spoke to her heart. I've got, got the quote from her own writing. She said, the Lord spoke to her heart and said, Marie, I'm not going to send the money that you're asking for. But if you will seek me, if you will pray to me, I'll bring the revival to where you are. And so she began to pray in 1907. She prayed for 20 years. That prayer life transformed her, molded her, prepared her for what was to come. 
And in the late 1920s, revival broke out where she was in North China, Shandong province. And this revival broke out. And it was, it was just incredible. And it defined a whole generation of, of missionaries and the influence they would have would, would roll on down to Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, missionaries who came out of what happened in North China where Marie Monson would go and she would speak and she would just look at a group of people like this. Um, who was it? Some, one of the guys that spoke yesterday said she only, these, a lot of these women only had three or four sermons. Who said that? Oh, he said it in the, well, these ladies only had three. Her, her, here was one of her dominant, she would look at the group, she'd say, have you been born again? Have you been born again? And she would talk about what happens when someone's born again. Have you been born again? Missionaries were saved. People who had been teaching at their, their little seminary got saved. Um, miracles occurred. And the Lord made his presence known again. People who came out of that um, helped define another generation. And when God is at work often in a place like that, he's often working at other places in the world at the same time. I don't understand this, but God is always seems to be at work making himself known to somebody. And there are these eras like the Welsh Revival where revival's coming up all over the world and you think, well, it's happening because of the Welsh Revival. No, it was happening because God was doing something. When I was in Arkansas, I, uh, I went and pulled the uh, records of Southern Baptists and other churches for that time period, 1904-1906. It wasn't 1904-06, but 05-07, the baptisms in the state went up by 25 to 30 percent. And I looked and I looked and I looked for some kind of Welsh connection. There was none. None. And so there were people like Bertha Smith, Bertha Smith, Miss Bertha, Lucy Wright, um, these different missionaries, men and women, who came back, Charlie Culpepper, others who came back and began sharing. And a whole generation of pastors and church leaders were influenced as they began to understand there's this new life, the life of Jesus in you. And he wants the church to do life, to do church out of this reservoir of the life of Jesus in them. And not in their own strength. And so this is what he has in mind. And so in that, in that movement of God, ultimately, there were people like Joseph Carroll and, and Bertha Smith, and they knew one another. And, and Jerry was very close to Miss Bertha. And others, and they were, they heard those stories. And they heard their hearts as they would share this, this awesome truth of this supernatural dimension to the believing life that we're all, it's part of our birthright to enjoy. Him. Him. So this school was birthed in that environment. In that era of the late 60s, early 70s, Started on the West Coast in 1968, 69. There was this young seminary student went down to um, uh, Haight-Ashbury. They started a little coffee shop there. It's called the Living Room. Revival broke out there. It broke out in Southern California. Then it began to break out all across the country. And young adults and young people were coming to Christ in great numbers. I tell people I was the last one saved in the Jesus People movement. I don't know that that's true. 
but it felt like I was the last one because I came to know the Lord in that environment. And, um, and so we would go to a Bible study on a Friday night at the youth pastor's house. And, and it wasn't a large church, but there'd be 150 kids crammed into a 1500 square foot house or something like that. And, and, and they would all be so joyful and so excited about the Lord Jesus. And we would sing and pray. Somebody would pull out a guitar and then we'd sing these cheesy Jesus songs, but they were beautiful to me. And we would sing these songs and then the youth pastor would sit in his armchair and just open up his Bible and would, would, would teach. And maybe somebody would be saved and then we would pray and we would all join hands and you better be in a really good position because your feet were going to go to sleep. Your legs were going to go to sleep if you weren't in the right place. And then we get done praying and everybody would pray in the house, down the hallway, through the living room, into the bathroom, wherever people were sitting. And, 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 and when it was over, some of us would say, Hey, let's go talk to some folks about Jesus. We'd hop in the truck and go downtown to the Paseo del Rio, downtown San Antonio. And we talk to people on the street about the Lord. And the, the atmosphere was just electric. There was this expectation every time we came together of what God was going to do. What God was going to do. And so this school was birthed in that environment. I wasn't here. You have to ask Art. You know, he knows where all the bodies are buried. You know, he's been here so long since the earth's crust cooled, but the He's been here a long time, you know, and together he and he and Dan, you know, walked together. They they saw God do these things. They saw God provide Collins experience that has seen God provide over and over again, sustaining something that is precious to him, a, a, a group of people, a place where people can learn to walk with God and pray in faith and do life at his leading under under his authority, under his kingly rule. And so the greatest thing about the school today, and it's so precious, and I value it as, as a relatively newcomer, although I've known about school a long time, is not what's happened in the past, it's what he wants to do in the future. We can learn from the past. We need to listen to the past. Those are I get excited about those things. I bore you to tears talking about revival history. But but God is at work today. Today he wants to put things right in the world in which you live. Today he wants to enter your circumstances and rule the way he rules in heaven. And he says, cry out to me. Cry out to me day and night. And Jesus said, shall God not? Avenge his own. And so, and as we studied in Luke 18, we saw this relationship between when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And we realize that the kind of faith he's talking about is the kind of faith that will cry out to God day and night. And he puts the two together. And this isn't the first time he's done it. I want to call your attention to Mark chapter 9. That was my introduction. I want to call your attention to Mark chapter 9. We're just, we're just winging it with the Lord this morning. Mark chapter 9. And I want to talk to you just a bit about shall not God avenge his own? 
And I want to use an example of what I believe the Lord has in mind when we talk about praying without ceasing, when we talk about looking to Him, crying out to Him day and night, and and the consequence of that if we don't. If we choose to do life in our own strength, try to do ministry in our own strength. You know, we get the consequence of we become weary and heavy laden. And that becomes our approach to life. We'll preach one thing on Sunday, teach one thing in our Bible study, and then we go out and act like none of that was true. And so there's a great danger in prayerlessness or self-reliance. Because the moment you stop praying, what are you relying on? Self. I don't know about you, but I've grown to trust self a lot less than I used to. All the things my 60-year-old self would tell my 20-year-old self if I had a shot, you know. So Jesus and three of his disciples have retreated, and they are up on a mountain. And there's this moment of transfiguration where they're able to see the very glory of Jesus that he has had through eternity. They, They catch a glimpse of that glory. In this Mount of Transfiguration. So they literally have had a mountaintop experience. And they are coming down the mountain. And they come to a village in Mark chapter 9 verse 14. And this is what we read. And when he came to the disciples. He saw a great multitude around them. And scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him. All the people were greatly amazed. And running to him. Greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered and said, he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father. How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe all things are possible. To him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears. Lord I believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it. Deaf and dumb spirit I command you. Come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out. Convulsed him greatly and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, 
and he arose. And when he had come into the house, now this is, this is what I would have done. His disciples asked him privately. I wouldn't have asked this publicly. Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Father, I thank you for your word. And I ask in these remaining moments that you would take your word. And by your spirit, apply it to our hearts. In a powerful way. Make it real to us. And we ask this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. There are three words I'm going to give you. I'm going to give them to you now that I just want to call attention to that help me understand or think about how this relates to will God not avenge his own. Here are the three words. The first word is glory. The second word is fruit. And the third word is going to be faith. So the first word is glory, the second word is fruit, and the third word is faith. So when I look at this passage and I read the story, it's very easy for me to think about how amazing the circumstance is. Because earlier in Mark's gospel, and you can just jot the reference down if you're taking notes, but in Mark 6 verse 7, Jesus commissions these brothers to go out and cast out demons and heal the sick and preach the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. He sends out the 12 to do this. So they have been empowered and commissioned to do something that at this moment they couldn't do. And that is where we're living today. We are like in so many areas of the church in North America. We are like the most powerless group of Christians perhaps of the ages. And all of the counsel and all of the wisdom and all the advice that's being offered is not rooted in God's word. But is rooted in, in secular wisdom and business uh, best practices and We have taken all of this body of thinking and literature and it has just infected the church. And so we think of the church primarily as an organization when it's doing well, if it checks off certain boxes and meets certain metrics. And it's not doing well if it's declining, not successful like a business that sales are down. And so these disciples in many ways just resonate with me. In terms of what you and I encounter all the time in the church today. A kind of self-promotion and self-reliance and a complete dependence on ourselves. Independent of God. Independent of what He wants to do. Independent of His provision. Independent of His supply that He has promised to give to those who respond to His call. And so the church today looks nothing like the church we read about in the Scripture. It's nothing like the church of Acts where over and over again we read of people like 
Philip, who's, who's, who heard God as he walked with him and he maintained this inner abiding and inner conversation with him. And in the context of that, he's, he's being obedient. He's left this mighty revival in Samaria. He's gone out in the middle of nowhere. And in the midst of that, not knowing where he was going or particularly why he was there, the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. And that's how the gospel went to Ethiopia. Later on, Acts 10, Peter's sitting on the roof of a house waiting for lunch. And he did what, what we ought to do, what we always ought to do when we just have these still moments. Where does your heart turn? His heart turned to the Lord. In the midst of that, he has a vision. And those of you who are Bible scholars, you'll know that vision was of the sheet of these unclean animals coming down and, and a voice saying, eat. And he says, oh, I can't eat, you know. And the end, end result of the lesson from the Lord was, you know, what God has declared clean, don't, don't say it's unclean or common. I mean, this is the big lesson he's going to learn and what's about to happen. But in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit said to Peter. The words are there. The Holy Spirit said to Peter. And, and that he needed to go down, that there were these men coming. and needed to go with these men. And they were from Cornelius' house. And the gospel went to a Gentile for the first recorded time in the book of Acts. In Acts 16, we have this marvelous account of how the church in Philippi was started. And it starts in Asia Minor, modern dirt Turkey, and, 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 and Paul is traveling from east to west across Asia Minor, and he wants to go into Asia, a little province, it's called Asia, in the southwest corner of modern-day Turkey. He wants to go to this province in Asia because Ephesus is there. This is the logical thing to do. This is the thing that makes sense, and that's not bad, unless God tells you something else. You have to be listening. You have to be paying attention. You have to be abiding. You have to be having this inner conversation where in your idle moments you just turn to the Lord and say, I love you, Lord, and and you, you have communion with him and fellowship with him. And so in the midst of his traveling, he's going to go into Asia where Ephesus is, the third largest metropolitan area in the Roman Empire, 300,000 people. And the Holy Spirit spoke to him and told him not to do it. The Holy Spirit said, no. He tries to turn northwest into Mysia where Bithynia is. He tries to turn northwest and it says the spirit of Jesus forbade him. So he can't go southwest, can't go northwest. And so he just keeps going west. And he goes until the land runs out and he gets to Troas. You can't go any further after that's water. And he goes to Troas and he goes to bed. And he says in the night he has this vision of a man from Macedonia who says, come over and help us. And the Bible says that he got up the next morning. He says, so we concluded that. Two intuitive knows from the Holy Spirit who's living in Paul and a vision at night. He gets up in the morning and he says, so we concluded that. So he gets on board a boat. They cross over. They ultimately get to Philippi. They go to the river. There's no synagogue where Paul normally would have gone. So they go to the river and they meet a woman there named Lydia and they share the gospel with her, the good news with her. And the Bible says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to give heed to the things spoken by Paul. And so this the successful businesswoman becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul continues to stay there, probably with her support. And, and he's preaching every day in the marketplace. And there's this demonized girl there. 
And she's following Paul and Silas around and she's shouting, you know, behold, the servants of the Most High God. Well, she wasn't incorrect, but it was making it hard for Paul to talk to people about Jesus with this girl yelling, you know, hey, these are the servants of the Most High God. So in some level of irritation, perhaps he turns and in the name of Jesus, he cast the demon out of her. I don't know if he knew it at the time, but she was a money making machine for a couple of guys. Because she used to tell the future for people and they were making money off of her. And so they get upset. They arrest him. They beat him and Silas with rods. Beat him with rods. They're arrested. They get thrown in jail. And come midnight, they're singing to the Lord. Singing to the Lord. I would have been probably feeling sorry for myself. Oh God. Here I am just sort of suffering for you, you know, feeling sorry for But they're singing to the Lord. As they're singing to the Lord, there's this earthquake that comes. All the doors are opened. The jailer thinks everybody's escaped. He's a civil employee. And, and if they get out, he's, he's in trouble. And so he's going to take his own life. And Paul hollers out, says, don't do that. Don't do that. We're all here. And, and the Bible says that Paul and Silas went with this man. The man took him home and washed his wounds. And that man, that jailer, and his entire household were saved that night when they heard the gospel of Jesus. They were saved. Now, I don't know what you're willing to go through so that someone can get saved. But that's what Paul was willing to do. And all he was doing was just following the Lord. And that's how the church in Philippi was started. I want to know how you write a manual for that. Warren, how do you write a manual for that? Here's how to start a church in Philippi. First, you go across in another country and you wait for God to tell you no twice. You know, you go to bed, have a vision. You go and, and you encounter a demonized girl who worries the hound out of you. You cast a demon. You get beaten with rods. That's how the church was started in Philippi. And that's how the church advanced in those earliest years. And, and came to a place of dominance throughout the old Roman Empire within 200, 300 years. They simply walked with God. They did the next thing the Lord said to do. In the absence of that, they, they knew what his priorities were. They knew what his heart was. And they were just on a mission to do that. A couple of years later, Paul goes to Ephesus and preaches in Ephesus. And the Bible says, everyone in Asia Heard the word of the Lord. No internet, no social media, no billboards, no planes with little flags flying behind them. Just people talking about Jesus. Everyone in Asia heard. So what he wanted to do two years ago, God let him do it. God, God was going to use him to do it. But it was more important because there was a jailer. It was a jailer that God had ready and that needed to hear the truth. How many opportunities are we missing? Because we are not choosing to rely on his leading, his direction. And look at these things that happen to us in a day. It's not just accidents and me. I've got my mission, my assignment, my, my agenda, and I've got to do that. We're not even close to God's agenda because we're not listening. And it's so important because if the church in North America is going to live It's going to live because it's his life in the church. It's him building his church. 
And so we come back to these disciples. And what's really interesting is not only amazing that they couldn't cast out the demon with all the help that they had been given, but it's also interesting to see what they were able to do. They were able to gather a crowd. There's no rocket science to gathering a crowd. You just do something interesting enough, Colin, they'll all come, you know. Um, get some guys up here that break stuff for Jesus, you know. Um, bulked up guys, not guys like me. Um, you know, and, and so they drew a crowd together. There was this debate taking place. They could enter into debate with great effectiveness. I don't know what they were arguing about, but uh, maybe it was over the Messiahship of Jesus. I don't know, but they were having an argument. People love arguments. People will come far and wide to hear a debate and an argument. I think they genuinely cared about the father and his son. They tried to cast the demon out. To their credit, they tried to cast the demon out. They could not, but they did attempt to do so, and they demonstrated in that effort real concern, real caring, and that was genuine. I believe that. And so the church often is known as genuine and caring and wanting to do good things. But are they supernatural things? There are things that that boy needed to happen that all of the best efforts of those disciples were absolutely useless. Self-reliance cannot help someone with a problem that big. And so it becomes a real question of where's the glory? God is very concerned about the glory. He created you so that he can make himself as the invisible God, so he can make himself visible through you, through your life to all of creation. And when Christ comes to live in you through his spirit, then like Galatians 2.20 says, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live now in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we have this entirely new way to live and and what we're seeing here is that if I rely on me, God doesn't get the glory. If I'm building a big church and I get it, a lot of people in the doors, you know, and it's about me and my reputation and my, my media presence, that's not about the Lord. He doesn't get the glory for that. So many of these guys, you would shudder to realize how many of these guys, they have moral failures. We read about that. I can't think of a major mega church right now that haven't, hasn't had a major moral failure in their leadership. But these guys get up there and it's almost like so what? You know, I I can recount I have names of pastors who have taken their life on Sunday morning. Leaving a family behind, taking their life because they saw nothing to live for and on paper they had everything to live for. You and I We're made to display the glory of God. And we find our greatest fulfillment and our greatest joy when we exhibit Him and not ourselves. We're made for this. And so they tried. They couldn't do it. And so so where's the glory in that? I asked your disciples to do it, but they could not. The Father said, Well, who gets the credit for that? He said, I asked your disciples. He's talking about Jesus. These guys, you know, it's kind of like guilt by association. These guys were utter failures and disappointments. 
to me in my hour of need. I ask your disciples to do it. I don't know about you, Jesus, but if, if, if you can do anything, please help us. He's not sure he can. He's not sure he can. But if you can, help us. And so I think this business of praying and crying out day and night and for God to come and put things right is a matter of glory. Because when he does come and manifest his kingly rule in our circumstances, he is glorified. The next word that I want us to think about is the word fruit. The word fruit. Jesus talks about that in John 15. He teaches about the, the parable of the vine. And I've taught here to third-year students, and we talk about this every year. The first day of class, we spend the whole day talking about the new life as the foundation for all ministry. And we do that because in my work, I encounter so many pastors And for them, the new life is not the foundation of ministry. It's organizational stuff, organizational dynamics, um, principles, and all that kind of stuff. And can you help us? They're not asking for supernatural help. They're asking for something to bump the numbers and get more people in the pews. And they're exhausted. It's devastating to the human spirit to, to try to do ministry without God. And so we spend, a, we spend a whole day on that. And the process of that, I talk about John 14. I spoke about it in our gathering uh, last fall and how the Lord is saying, I'm, I'm leaving, but this relationship we've had is going to continue and it's going to have certain characteristics. It's going to be different, but it's going to continue. I'm going to send another helper just like me. And he is going to be for you all that I would be if I was here in person. And And so... This relationship we discovered is spiritual. I'm not going to preach it again, but it's spiritual. It's internal. It's environmental. And that day you will know that I am in the Father and you and me and I and you. It's environmental. He's our environment. We are in Christ. And it's personal. I will not leave you orphans. I will not leave you as a parentless person. And then it's as if the disciples weren't getting it because John 15 is the illustration of John 14. He says, guys, it's like this. Let me draw you a picture. I'm the vine. You're the branches. And everything that branch needs to produce fruit, I'm going to supply that. Without me, you can do nothing. And so if you abide in me, if you stay in me, if you remain with me, if you have communion with me and fellowship with me and and just walk with me in your inner self. You're going to produce fruit. Fruit. All the things I want to accomplish in your life. I'm going to supply you with everything you need. In the midst of that he talks about prayer. He says if you abide in me and my word abides in you. You can ask whatever you desire and it will be done for you. And, and he says that moment when he, um, when he makes that statement. He says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. But the context of that is right after him saying, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my father is glorified. So he's saying out of your prayer life. Out of your prayer life. Your prayer life that's rooted in me, where I'm supplying to you everything you need to have a prayer life. 
what to pray about, how to pray. Sometimes you don't know what to pray. But in that context of that prayer life, by this, my Father is glorified. You're going to bear fruit. You're going to bear fruit. So we're beginning to pick up some hints of the consequences of, of abandoning prayer, of not, of not making prayer just a discipline among disciplines or something we do just to kind of check the boxes each day. But prayer becomes the heart activity because it is my access to the Father who wants to supply to me everything I need to do everything he's called me to do. Obviously, the disciples were out of sorts on this day. And so what happens if you don't pray? Well, according to this passage, not much. The demon stayed. I don't know what they were saying. It almost is comical. I don't know what they were saying. But the demon just stayed. I don't know if he was thumbing his nose at them, making fun of them, but he didn't move. And this boy is continuing to suffer. And, and, and Jesus asked one diagnostic question in this whole exchange. He says, how long has this been happening to him? And the father says, from infancy. And I wish I could have seen Jesus' face when the father said that, from infancy, from childhood. Because what I know of Jesus, I believe, I believe there would have been a shadow that crossed his face. Because I don't believe for a moment it was ever the father's heart that this boy's entire childhood would be stolen by the enemy. Thrown into the fire. Thrown into water to drown him. That wasn't a psychological problem. That was attempted murder by a demon. Now, I know you and I live in a modern world and, you know, we like to just deal with our senses, our five senses, things we can touch and smell, 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 smell and feel. We want to use a scientific method to evaluate things, to develop proofs, and we want to have everything systematized and explained and understood. But dear one, demons exist. And I don't want to glorify demons this morning. I'm not. I'm just saying that they exist. There are people who have mental problems and mental struggles and mental illness, if you want to use that expression. And that is not the same thing as someone who's demonized, but the demonized person can, can look like those things or the demonized person can be, have a mental problem and the demon can be aggravating all of that that physical problem. There's so many ways in which this is expressed and we see this in the New Testament, but there's a clear distinction made. But at this moment, this demon is trying to kill the boy. How long has this been happening to him? Can demons do that to somebody? Demons exist. I've talked to folks before who say, "I I don't know that I believe in that stuff. Christians. You know, I don't see that happening in North America. Well, so what? That doesn't mean it's not happening. There's an unseen world that dramatically affects the world that we do see. I love the story about Jesus and the Gadarene demoniac, and he casts the demons out, and, and, and they're not responding right away, and, and he speaks to them and discovers the name is Legion. And I'm not saying you need to do that. I'm just saying he discovers the name is Legion, and they beg him. You read the scripture. It says they beg him not to make them leave this country. So he, he casts them out and, and puts them in this herd of pigs. And when these pigs get the demons, these demonized pigs, they run down a hill, jump in the water, and they drown. So I don't know 
what people are thinking when they say demons are just a mental illness. It's like a disease because whatever it is, pigs can catch it. It's a mental problem that pigs can get. According to Jesus, anyway. And so there's this issue of, 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 of glory, but there's this, also this issue of fruit. And, and what the Lord wanted to accomplish in that moment was not being accomplished by the disciples. And the last word I would mention is faith, is faith. When God puts things right, there's a dimension here we need to see related to faith. Okay, so, so when we're looking through this passage, um, the father has a conversation with Jesus about faith. Jesus says to him, if you believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And so we can see immediately it's possible for someone to be trusting, but also struggling with doubt at the same time. And Jesus is not critical of him, you know, but but it's possible. You can have that mixture, admixture. And so he says, I believe. So Jesus casts the demon out. And this is this is him expressing the kingdom of God. He's not just preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's demonstrating it. This is what it looks like when the king comes and he puts it right. The way he wants it. So when it's all over. You have nine disciples of Jesus. Confronted with this incredible problem. They were powerless in the face of it. What went wrong? You know, and we, we are like that. We are, we are in churches where we see the problems of the world and we say, isn't it terrible what's happening there and what people are doing over there and how they're behaving over there? But we're absolutely powerless, it seems, to do anything about it. And so they check into the local Motel 6, I guess. They came into the house and they asked him privately. Why couldn't we do it? That's the way I would have asked. Don't you think they were embarrassed? Don't you think they felt shame? Why couldn't we do it? And what's really interesting, what you need to hear is Jesus' answer. Because now, once again, he's going to associate prayer as the greatest expression of faith. He talks about an unbelieving generation earlier in the passage. But in verse 28... Why could we not cast it out? Verse 29. So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. What does that tell you they were not doing? You get it? If this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting, what had they stopped doing? Praying and fasting. So Mark, in capturing this conversation, talks strictly about the solution. But Matthew, and you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to, or you can if you want to. Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew chapter 17. Let me read that same account to you. And see if you can pick up on it. Uh, Matthew 17 verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. That was the problem. Because of your unbelief. You were not trusting me. You were not relying on me. In this moment, 
you had like almost said, I got this. I can handle this one. We've been casting out demons successfully. We got this, Lord. You don't have to worry about it. You can just take a seat right now. I mean, how many times do we do that at church? You know, whatever. All right. Because of your unbelief, that was the problem. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. There's that impossible word again. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. The solution was prayer. The problem was unbelief. Does that sound like Luke 18 at all to you? When things are really bad, Jesus said men ought always to pray and not lose heart. 18.1. And then he tells the story of the widow and the unjust judge that we've read each night. And how this widow keeps coming until the judge avenges her, puts it right. And it's because of her persistent coming. And Jesus says... Isn't that like God? Hear what the unjust judge says. Isn't, won't God do that? Won't he avenge his elect who cry out to him day and night? Who pray. That's what it means to always pray and not lose heart. They cry out day and night. And then he says these words that just stuck in my heart when I first read them a couple years ago in a new way. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find people who are expressing faith? The greatest way you can express your faith is you're crying out to God. I know you are there. I know you hear me. And I trust you. And my confidence is in you and no one else and nothing else. And so Jesus, even in this story, connects prayer and faith. It's almost like prayer is an incubator for faith. It's also a demonstration of faith. It's, it's so many things where faith can happen. I don't pray unless I believe someone's listening. I don't sit with him when I'm in trouble unless I think he can do something and wait for God to come, wait for him to intervene. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you come enter my circumstances, my awesome God and King, and rule over this mess, my mess, our mess, Put it right, Lord. Let us have a glimpse of your kingdom. Will God not avenge his own? Jesus made it very clear he will. He taught us that. We have this example of nine disciples of Jesus. He got, they can only talk about problems. They don't seem to be able to do anything about problems. And there's this mighty lesson, this incredible lesson. That we need to pray always. Always. The church is going to advance, as one man said, on its knees. On its knees. And I wonder, as we spent time together this weekend, how the Lord has spoken to you about Himself. Have you gained a sense of how much He loves you? And desires to be with you. In Matthew 6 in the passage that Art talked about yesterday. There's this procedure where when you pray. When you pray go into your room and close the door. 
For years I read that as proper procedure. And then it occurred to me (laughs) that the Lord was saying something about his value of you being alone with him. He really wants to be alone with you. He, He loves you. He longs to be with you. He wants you to know him. He wants to reveal himself to you. And we discover, as we did last night, that Jesus is always interceding for you. He lives at the throne of God to always intercede for you and for me. And that the moment you begin to pray, you get to enter into this prayer realm, this prayer life of Jesus. We get to be a part of that. The Spirit making intercession for us. You think the Spirit is praying contrary to Jesus? He's joining Jesus at that moment when we begin to pray. And we get to be a part of this mighty flow of the history of God's work among us. The very moment we hit pause and we say, I've got to pray about this. I've got to talk to my father. I've got to take this to him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I, I'm so grateful to you for the privilege of being with you and being with the dear men and women who make up the leadership of the school. I just want us to take a few moments just to quietly and privately respond to the Lord. How has He spoken to your heart? I often talk to students about takeaways. What are going to be your takeaways from this weekend? Well, as the Lord said, here's something I want you to take and I want you to hold on to this. Someone once said that There are more answers in heaven waiting and there are people praying for those answers. So much the Father wants to accomplish. Absolutely humanly impossible for you to do, but but when you pray, we have this opportunity to join in what God is doing. We can see lives change. We can see marriages change. Healed. We can see people whose minds are broken put right. We can see people absolutely in bondage to addiction and sinful behavior set free. But you and I don't have the capacity to do that. But He does. Prayer is simply turning away from every other resource, everything else, and turning to Him. Father, when I was reading your word earlier this week and I 
I think about Luke 17, and it says that people were just doing all the things that we see people doing today. Just before the king erupted in the history. Just before you return. Eating, drinking, marrying, going to work. Busy, busy, busy activity. Consumed with survival and self-preservation and chasing after little joys and little happinesses. And then you come. And you ask the question, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? If we are the last generation that ever walks the earth, Father, we ask You today for these dear ones and others that will be passing through the grounds of this campus. That when you look to find faith on the earth, you'll find it here. Would you help us to see what you see about our prayer life? And as we abandon ourselves to you, as we look forward to the coming of your kingdom, Would you mold us to the prayer life of your son who lives to intercede for us always? Thank you, Father, for hearing us. We love you. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.